Um, the rest of us, if you would please, open to 1 John. The, uh, the first letter of John, not his gospel, but the letter, 1 John. Uh, we've been in this for a couple of weeks, and uh, we're going to continue for a couple more. John, of course, is the apostle who uh, wrote these three letters, also wrote Revelation, wrote his gospel, a big chunk of the New Testament. These letters are, are pointed to an audience. Uh, maybe the church in Ephesus where John spent some time ministering in his older years. We don't know that for certain, but that's a likely destination for this letter. And John is one of the few remaining witnesses of Jesus Christ. By the time he writes this letter, he's probably in his 80s. He was a, a young man, maybe even a teenager when he first met Jesus. And so the people who met Jesus in their 20s and 30s and 40s over the last 60 years or so before he writes this have mostly passed away. And so John's one of the few kind of remaining eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And he reminds us of that early on in the book, he makes that point repeatedly. He says, we walked with him, talked with him, touched him. He was real. And the reason he has to remind his audience of that is because they are in a situation where there's some false teaching creeping into the church that's negating the reality of Jesus Christ, saying that, um, well, you know, he wasn't really a, a man per se because, you know, God wouldn't become flesh. That would, that would sully him. And so John's writing partly against that, but also for correction, um, not just against wrong teaching, but to reinforce what's right. And so he continues to come back and use words like we and us and our and talk about the unity that is in Jesus Christ, the unity in him that binds us together, that we're not bound by going to the same church or having the same background or all being Jews or whatever it is. He says, in Christ, we have our unity. And so we are together in this. That's going to become even more important as we continue on through the book of, of 1 John. And as he goes through the first chapter, which we've covered already, he talks about how we are constantly walking, we're in motion, that Christianity is not a stagnant religion, we're always going somewhere, and we need to be walking in the light. He talks about how our walk is going to reflect what's inside of us, and so what's inside of us needs to be in the light. We can't be duplicitous and claim one thing and do another. It doesn't work, and it's not useful. And so John continues to point back to the same thing over and over and over again, which is the truth the truth of who Jesus was and what he did. And the truth is that there are a month of Sundays at least in the next couple of verses that we're going to look at as we start chapter 2. So we're going, to, we're going to treat them deeper than we have to, but not nearly as deeply as we could as we get into chapter 2. And in that, we're going to see that John continues to insist on truth. He declares the truth. He reminds the people he's writing to of the truth. He explains how truth affects us and what happens when we don't abide by the truth. Truth, John tells us, is the thing. He makes that clear in chapter 1, and then we have a, a break for chapter 2. And it's important just to do a little side note here and remind ourselves that the, the chapter breaks in our Bibles are artificial. They are a post-publishing construct, or what we would call part of the, the paratext that helps us to understand the outline of Scripture helps us to navigate it. There were no chapter breaks or verse numbers in the original writings. And over time, there were quite a few efforts to numerate Scripture in some way to make it easier to, to follow, dating back to the early church years. But the ones that stuck with us that we have that I would wager probably everybody's Bible has, unless you have an oddball one, came to us uh, not until the 13th century. 
um, when an Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, divided the text into chapters. And it wasn't until another 300 years passed that uh, a French printing press operator named Estienne put numbers to each verse. And so those numbers and, and chapter breaks have only been around for a few centuries. And we could, um, we could have a really spirited debate about whether they should be there at all because they're not in the original text. But we're not going to do that right now because we cannot debate that they're extremely useful. They're very helpful in being able to find out where we are and our ability to study and follow along with each other. I mean, it's much easier to say John 3.16 than it is to say John, about a sixth of the way through, right after Jesus makes a whip and goes into the temple, but before John the Baptist's followers accuse him of stealing Jesus or John's thunder. You know, it's, it's much easier to say John 3.16 so we can follow each other there. So they're very helpful. But one of the problems with the, the chapter and verse breaks is that if you're as distractible as I am, and I honestly pray to God that you're not, um, is they can, they can actually kind of impede how easy it is to read along and follow the, the flow of the text as it would have been originally written. So when we see a new verse, there's kind of a natural momentary pause, very small, but still there. And if my particular Bible I preach out of actually starts a new paragraph for every new verse. And so there's a natural pause there. And then we come to the end of a chapter and we have a, a more severe break with a giant bold number in it that says stop here and then continue. Actually, I have one copy of the Bible that doesn't have the verse and chapter breaks in it. Um, you can still find them and I'd recommend everybody has one because it it's really nice to just sit and soak in it and, and follow it and read it and pray about it. Um, it's less useful for studying, but great just for being the Word of God, which I think is a good enough job for a Bible to do. <clears throat> the reason I bring all this up is, is not because, you know, this is a fun factoid um, for the dinner table, but because the chapter break after 1 John 1, um, I find to be particularly distracting for me. I totally understand why it's there, absolutely get it, but I, it, I think it does a little bit of a disservice to the continuity of the ideas that John is building to have that break there. And I think in general, John's writing, it doesn't respond quite as fluidly as many other writers to that kind of construct with the chapter and verse system um, because he's such an intricate and spiraling writer. We do well to read his work straight through without those pauses. So I think you'll see this as we, as we start in chapter two today. So we're actually gonna start reading from chapter one, verse five, so that we pick up some momentum and context and we roll right into chapter two as if the break wasn't even there. So let's read from 1 John 1, 5. And I'm reading from the New King James Version, just in case yours is very slightly different. It says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Lord, thank you for your word and the truth that is in it. 
I pray that we would absorb it this morning, God, that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, help us to understand it better so that we can grow closer to you, so that we can obey you better, so that we can represent you better, Lord, as the earth needs light in its darkness, so that we be convicted of where we fall short of it, God, and also glory and rejoice in the mercy that you have for us in it as well. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time together. Amen. Now, I wanted to read that whole section together because it, it really does belong together. In chapter 2, verse 1, John writes that, I'm writing these things to you. And so we can't really do justice to what comes next if we don't know what he was writing to them. So we look back on those verses at the end of chapter 1, and we see, of course, that he's talking about truth. He's writing them about truth and light and walking and how our actions ought to match our words and how lies have no place or fellowship with God. Those are the things that he's writing to them. And then he gives them the purpose. He's writing them these things about truth and light and actions and fellowship so that they may not sin. Now, this is the second time he's declared a purpose for what he's writing. Earlier on in chapter 1, he said, I'm writing these to you so that your joy may be full. And so they fulfill both those purposes, and we'll come back to that. But this is a very serious declaration. I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. Is a very, very serious thing, a very big thing, a very important thing. But it's also very, very simple. John says, put into practice what I've written and don't sin. And this is where we run into a particular hobby horse of mine, which is the thinking about the difference between simplicity and ease. Simplicity and ease. Because what John is saying is very simple. Do this, don't sin. But the fact that it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Don't sin is a simple command. But how many of us have had an easy time with it? Good. <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. Simple can be very, very hard. Now, by the same token, complex things don't necessarily have to be difficult. It's a complex process for us to put our live stream up online every Sunday morning. We have to turn the camera on, zoom the camera, connect the camera cables, select your input, select the output, type the message title, turn on the software, all this and all that. Each one of those steps is pretty easy in and of itself. But there's a whole lot of them to do, and they have to be done in a particular order. The process is complex, even if the tasks are simple. So complex things are not necessarily difficult, and simple things are not necessarily easy. John is asking us a simple thing. Heed what I'm writing and don't sin. Walk in the light. Have fellowship with one another. Confess your sins. Don't believe yourself to be above sinfulness. These are all pretty simple things, but they're difficult things. In fact, they're impossible things. They are impossible things without the Holy Spirit, whose job, in part, is to convict us and encourage us and to remind us what Jesus said and, and so on. Now, my wife, as she, was, as she is prone to do, made a very good analogy the other day as we were discussing 1 John and, and sinfulness. We were discussing these verses and the expectations for sin of a believer and the struggle with the idea of both having the Holy Spirit, who was sinless, dwelling us after salvation, and, and yet still committing sin. You know, how... How can we do that? How can we be so duplicitous? You know, does the Holy Spirit get lazy or do we overrule him? 
Or are we falling back into being unsaved every time we sin and need to, to re-accept Christ? Or you know, do we in fact not really even sin at all because we've been born again spiritually and we're just hanging on to old flesh and it might sin, but it's not really us, so it doesn't matter. You can see how this starts to get really spirally. You make your head spin. But Anna pointed out the simplicity of Scripture. It says we're born again. Okay, it says we're born again. It doesn't say that we're hatched fully grown again. We're born again. And as she put it, one thing that is very true about babies is that they're useless. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. <laughs> but they can't do anything. You have to teach them everything from the beginning. They can't even focus their eyes or swallow properly or control where their arms are. They look like little drunk Muppets, you know? <clears throat> you know, they tend to be a year old before they can even put two steps in front of the other. <clears throat> so think about how many times a child fails at walking before they start taking steps. You know, Edith, our youngest, has been walking for months, but she still will just randomly fall over or run into a wall, or, or she'll forget which foot goes next, and she'll just kind of hop around in a circle. You know? It takes a lot of practice. Babies aren't very smart. <laughs> and I think this is a really good example of our new life in Christ that only a mother could have thought of. That when we're born again a new creation, we have to learn how to do everything all over again. Not in a physical walk, but our spiritual walk has to be started at the very beginning. We have to learn everything from the basics. And how many times are we going to fall before we learn to put one foot in front of the other, spiritually? Not because we're failures, but because we're brand new to this and we have a lot of learning to do. Now, the caveat here is that, as John and others point out in Scripture, we have to be walking always toward Christ. This doesn't give us license to just sin. Knowing the extent of his grace, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Romans 6, I bet many of you are familiar with that. We shouldn't live in it any longer, but to walk in newness of life. <clears throat> now John indicates that if we're born again, but if we're still exhibiting those spiritual actions of the unsaved in darkness, that's the ending verses of chapter 1, if we're just kind of lying on the floor flopping around and soiling ourselves instead of learning to walk and talk and use our big boy pants to stretch the metaphor to its breaking point, then we're not practicing the truth. We're not growing. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we, if we keep using our fingers enough over and over again until we finally figure out how to hold on to something, then we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus and we have fellowship with each other. It's very simple, John says. He says, my little children, like he understands how young the audience he's writing to is, whether it's the church in Ephesus or us today, young believer or old, my little children, John says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I want you to understand these things and to grow up to practice being in the light to keep growing as new creations and not to be satisfied with sitting in your diaper unable and unwilling to do anything useful, but to grow up and be part of the world. 
And John says in his third letter, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And as a dad, that is all I can think about today. And after Anna made this point about babies being useless, Josh made the point, and I'm stealing it here, royalty checks in the mail, that we look at God as our spiritual father. Of course we do. Luke 11 is very clear about this. Luke 11 says in verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Now, in some cultures, scorpions are delicacies, so it might not be that bad. (laughs) If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is a very small example of how God is a good and caring Father. He gives us good things, treats us well. And now, imagine how we treat our children as they're learning the basics. We don't yell at our nine-month-old for not being able to walk. Like, you fool, haven't you figured this out yet? You know, get up. No, we, we lift them up to try again, right? And we encourage them, and we draw them in with our love. And then we celebrate and we rejoice together as they figure it out. One of the things I love is when the kids do stay in here, and we get to see Edith and Caleb and the little feet wandering around and falling over and making noise because we can rejoice in that together. They're growing as we ought to be. How much more does the Lord rejoice over our learning to take those steps one at a time, running into cabinets, falling over, picking up stuff out of the trash can, having to put it back, but we learn until we can finally walk toward him and we grin like fools because we think we've conquered Everest when really we're just at the very beginning of what we're going to figure out. We are his children. And John uses this phrase, my little children. It's a, it's a pet phrase. It's, a, it's an endearing phrase. It's not meant as you know, dismissive or demeaning. He's not insulting them. He's telling them about the tenderness of his love for them. He says, my little children, these things I write to you. And he writes them because he, he cares and he sees himself as a kind of a, a, a spiritual elder to the people he's writing to. Probably because he is. I mean, he's in his 80s, maybe, in, maybe even into his 90s by now. But also because he was with Jesus himself, after all. He was an eyewitness to Christ, as he reminds us at the start of the letter. There aren't many people left around who can say that by this time. And, and John ministered in Ephesus later in his life, and no doubt saw some of the people that are probably reading this letter come to Christ. And so he feels a kind of parental relationship toward that church that he's probably writing to in 1 John. He calls them my little children. That's a phrase that occurs nine times that I could find in the New Testament. Um, Paul Paul uses it once, and he is kind of an exasperated parent in Galatians 4 saying that he's uh, laboring still and again for these little children who have to relearn the gospel they'd forgotten. That's one time. Seven of the other eight times are in John's letters. He says, my little children, I remind you that your sins are forgiven. He says, little children, abide in Jesus. Little children, let no one deceive you. Little children, let us love each other. Little children, you are of God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And these paint a picture of John's patience toward these believers that a good father ought to have toward his little children. 
And then there's one last use of little children in the New Testament. And it probably shouldn't surprise you that the person who writes it is John. But the one who says it is Jesus. It's in John's Gospel in chapter 13, verse 33. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. This is the only recorded time that Jesus uses that phrase, little children. And it's really important that we look at the context here. This is the Last Supper, so the end of the Last Supper. This is after the washing of the disciples' feet. This is immediately after Judas has gone out to betray him. And Jesus is talking to his few remaining disciples. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he calls himself, is reclining against Jesus right there next to him as Jesus proclaims his deity and says, I love you, but I have to go. Love one another as I have loved you, and by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And coming out of that situation, it's no wonder that John uses this phrase. It's no wonder he would adopt this for his own disciples, his own people who learn from him, to encourage them, to connect with them, to show them how deeply he cares for them, and to remind them that they're still learning. That in the midst of all the false teaching that's been creeping into the church, there, these early Gnostic things, that there's still truth. There's still righteousness. There's still a choice to be made in favor of God. And so he tells them, I'm writing to you, my dear little children, whom I love like Jesus loved his disciples and gave of himself for them. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. To remember who Christ is, to depend on him for strength and the truth to walk in the light and confess your sins and know that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's the context in which he next reminds them they're going to blow it sometimes. <clears throat> he says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, there, there's a point of debate that we need to settle for clarity's sake so we can move forward without having to worry about it, and that's, that's the if. I spoke a little bit last week about how John uses logical statements. Um, most of you don't know this about me, but in my basement, there's a box full of trophies. Uh, there's one or two for like baseball and stuff, but they're mostly for math. There's a whole bunch of math trophies in my basement. <clears throat> and I love how clear math is. There's, there's a solution to an equation. There's an answer to a problem. <clears throat> and when I got to college, I had the opportunity to take a class on logic. And I was, I was kind of blown away because it basically said, here, use math concepts to understand language. I loved it. I still have that textbook. It's one of the few that I still have. And the most basic logic argument is the if-then statement. So if this is true, then this other thing also is true. So for example, if he's preaching, Marcus will wear long pants. I'm preaching, I am wearing long pants. But you can't flip it around and say, if he's wearing long pants, then he's preaching, because there are very rare occasions when I'm not preaching that I will actually wear long pants <clears throat> and not shorts. But you see the way it works. So if this is true, then this other thing also is true. And John uses that construction here. If anyone sins, then they have an advocate. And this simply means that 
if someone sins, in the case where a believer sins, he does for sure have an advocate. Whenever you sin, you have an advocate every time, not just during moments when you're especially kind or, or thoughtful or, or whatever it is, but any believer who has had his blood poured out of, has Jesus Christ's blood poured out over him and accepted him as Lord, who, whenever that person sins, he does have an advocate. That's the logic that John is displaying here. Now, logic also dictates that if someone does not sin, then he would have no need for an advocate. So John has no need to say this to believers unless they do indeed sin. And he went through that in chapter 1, verse 8, makes it pretty clear that believers do sin. Of course they do. But I would encourage you not to take my word for it, or even to take logic's word for it, but to take Scripture's word for it, that our flesh desires sin. It's in our earthly nature at war with the Spirit. Paul talks about this extensively in Romans 7 and 8. Now, I'm not going to do a whole lecture on those two, because the point is really made pretty simply in just a couple of verses there. So chapter 7, verse 14 of Romans says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And drop down to verse 18, you'll see it says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And then a little chunk at the end of the chapter and then into chapter 8, it says, I find then a law, that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warning against, sorry, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that word walk is very important there, as we talked about last week. And I would encourage you to keep reading through Romans 8. Even if you've read it many times before, it is always good to go back. Remind yourself of that. Paul can be a little bit of a roller coaster to follow as far as his writing style, but uh, he's grappling with this very issue of what it means to be saved and in the world. And he comes to the only conclusion that a reasonable person could come to, which is that, yes, we live in the world, but our hope is not grounded in it. We have the flesh to deal with, but we don't walk according to it. We don't practice it. We don't set our mind on it. But instead, we remember what Christ accomplished, and we set our minds on him, on the things of the Spirit. There's a difference between a sin and pursuing sin, between sin as an action and sin as a lifestyle, as a walk, as a practice. John uses those words intentionally. <clears throat> we're surrounded by sin, and we're surrounded by opportunity to sin. I mean, you go open the spam folder in your email, there's 100 opportunities to sin right there. Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but we're no longer to, to walk in it, to live in it, John says. Our walk has to be in the light. And that means that every time we trip, every time we run into a cupboard, every time we fall over accidentally, it's in the light and it's seen. And that's helpful for us as we're walking because we can learn from it then. <clears throat> Galatians 5 says to walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says to walk in newness of life. But also remember that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So when John says, if anyone sins, he's not saying, 
if you're one of those people who sins, or if you're one of those people who don't sin, this doesn't apply to you, he's not delineating between people who sin and people who don't. He's saying that every single time that we do, and Paul and others ensure us that we do indeed, every single time, Christ is our advocate. Not sometimes. That's his logic. If, then, if we sin, Christ is our advocate. No exceptions. And so we've kind of dealt with the if, and now we have the then. If this, then that. If we sin, and we will, then we have an advocate. It's important to remember here as we're thinking about this that God's salvation is not based upon linear time. He's not looking at us and saying, you know, great, you repented, you're saved. And then we, you know, we yell at our neighbor or we swear because we stub our toe or we lust after our neighbor's boat or whatever it is. And he says, oh man, back to the drawing board. You know, as if he hasn't seen it coming all along. He knows our every thought, knows our every deed, our every machination from before time even began. <clears throat> and it was before time even began that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That says Ephesians 1, 4. You can read 2 Timothy 1 and Titus 1 for more about God's eternal knowledge and plans for us. The point is that God is not going along forgiving us and then condemning us and then forgiving us and then condemning us. That's not how it works. He already knows his sheep. <clears throat> to suggest that it's back and forth like that is to limit the knowledge and provision of God. And when we are his, when we are saved and the blood of Christ covers all our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John can say, when we sin, if we sin, we do have an advocate. He says, we have an advocate. Remember, he uses this kind of language throughout we and us and our. He repeatedly points out that there is fellowship and togetherness and there's unity in who we are as believers who share a common faith. We, 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 all the way home. <clears throat> Didn't know if that was going to go laugh or not. Good. But all the way home to our life with him forever, it's we. We are in this together. <clears throat> and that's remarkable, you know, that we have an advocate. Because John could have said, I have an advocate. Because I hung out with Jesus help take care of his mom. Or somebody could say, I have an advocate because I, I paid a whole bunch of indulgences or I was morally superior or I was wealthier or politically connected or whatever it is. I have an advocate. He says, we have an advocate. And that is intimately tied to the next verse, which says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We have an advocate. And his propitiation, which we're going to come back to in a moment, is sufficient for all of us. We have an advocate. We are in this together. Any one of us who sins, and we will, has an advocate. There's no waiting line. So let's talk about that word just for a moment, advocate. And I, I couldn't think of a translation of the Bible off the top of my head that that doesn't use the word advocate there um, in English for the Greek uh, parakletos. Um, John's the only writer to use that word in Scripture. <clears throat> Four times, it's quotes from the lips of Jesus himself, talking about the Holy Spirit. The fifth and final time is here, where John is talking about Jesus. 
And that word, parakletos, it just means someone by your side, or more appropriately, somebody on your side, on your behalf, to help. And the picture here, it's a, it's a legal one. And this has been described by, by pastors much wiser and more eloquent than me as a courtroom scene, with the Father as the judge, and Jesus as our advocate, and Satan in the place of the prosecutor. So that's certainly founded in their biblical roles. Revelation 12.10 refers to Satan as the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night. And his name means accuser, Satan. We see him in action in Job chapter 1, where, where God says, hey, my servant Job is upright and blameless. And Satan says, well, of course he is. I mean, you blessed him and protected him and gave him all the stuff. Anybody would be good in that circumstance, but get rid of his stuff and, and you'll see his true character. That's the kind of effort that Satan puts in to accuse the people of God. But it's not all hypothetical. There are very real accusations that are absolutely up to snuff. Because none of us is without sin. And because of that, Satan always has ammunition to accuse us. You know, we, we think of Satan as the great deceiver, the great liar, and for good reason. But when he comes before God to accuse us of, of sin, maybe the only time that he actually speaks the truth. Because that's all he has to do. He could go before the Father right now and accuse me accurately of many, many counts of, of pride, of foul language, of of lust, of harm, of lying, and he would be absolutely correct. In the fourth grade, my friends and I used to play baseball at recess. And one time, I swear it was only once, <laughs> I called myself safe when I knew I'd been tagged out. That lie is sufficient reason for Satan to accuse me of lying before God and demand that justice be served. And that's the thing about God, one of the things about God, isn't it? He's a just God. There are, you know, a hundred scriptures to go to to point out that God hates sin, Isaiah 13, 11, that sin separates us from God because of his holiness. We see that in Genesis 3, 8, Isaiah 59, 2. The wages of sin is death. We know that from Romans 6. That goes all the way back to Genesis when animals had to die to make clothing to cover up the sin of Adam and Eve. <clears throat> it continued on in the sacrifices in the temple, paying those prices for sin. The fact is sin is going to be punished, and Satan knows that. And he knows from his own experience sinning against God that sin does not go unnoticed or unpunished. And so when he accuses us, he demands that the full payment for sin be levied down. And he doesn't have to convince God, because God needs no convincing on that count. The sentence will be paid. <clears throat> now, here is where the courtroom analogy breaks down. Because Jesus is not a defense attorney, exactly. A defense attorney's job is to convince the judge or the jury that his client, the accused, is innocent. Or if the facts are overwhelming, then to enter a guilty plea and beg for mercy in sentencing. Jesus does neither of those things. Rather, he says, yeah, the accused is guilty. He sinned. He lied to Nathan on that fourth grade baseball field. <clears throat> One of the primary differences between Christianity and every false religion is this. That Christianity does not make us out to be the good guys. It doesn't hem and haw and say, you know, you're not really so bad after all. 
And it doesn't use God or a, a pantheon of gods to try to make us seem better by making them worse. Uh, see, they're terrible too, so we're not so bad. <clears throat> the whole effect of a, of a perfect God, of the, one, of the one true, holy, perfect God, is that he doesn't need to have more of our character, but that we need to have more of his. The Father knows we are sinful and deserve to die. Satan knows we are sinful and deserve to die. Jesus knows we are sinful and deserve to die. And what he does as our advocate is not to try and dissuade the Father from the obvious truth, but something else entirely. He says, yes, this accused man has committed sin, which deserves payment by death. Absolutely. And John writes there, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The accused has committed sin, and that sin requires a death penalty. Our advocate says, okay. And the most remarkable thing in all of Christianity to me is this verse, that, that Jesus himself says not that we are innocent and deserve no punishment, but that we are guilty and that he has already taken it. Not that he's going to get around to it eventually, go scrape up bail money after the court session's over, but he can say to the Father, this one's guilt is paid for, and God is satisfied by that unconditionally. So if you remember nothing else from today, remember that. Those who are in Christ Jesus are made clean by his blood. His sacrifice is sufficient, complete, perfect, and eternal. There is no work left for him to do to justify us. He doesn't have to phrase his opening and closing arguments very artfully. He doesn't have to try to paint the prosecutor as just some guy out for blood looking for a victim or for a, someone to blame. He doesn't have to, you know, describe the system as unfair or the judge as aloof or biased. He simply says, as he did on the cross, it is finished. <laughs> and the difference between the courts of the world and the court of heaven in this analogy is not just that there's probably less of a weight up there but that the advocate for the accused doesn't simply argue that he's innocent. He makes him innocent by his own sacrifice. The only one that could ever possibly be sufficient for us. And not only for us, but for the whole world. So our salvation is the completion of an equation. It's math. It's logic. God is righteously angry at sin. He abhors it. He cannot abide it. He will punish it. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There will be no darkness in his presence. He has a holy hatred of sin and he demands payment for it. If anyone sins, then there must be a penalty of death. It's if and then. If this is true, this also is true. And what Jesus does is he says, I am the then. I am the then. And he fulfills that logic. He completes the equation. It's very simple. It's very simple, but it is not easy. What Christ did on the cross for us was simple, but it was not easy. It was torment. 
But the logic is simple. And we don't need to overcomplicate the gospel, church. We don't need to make it about immediately understanding and following every bit of perfect doctrine. And we don't need to make it assumptions about people to think, that person smokes, they're obviously not saved, or that person yelled at his cat, he must not be saved, that person eats too much, they must not be saved, whatever it is. <clears throat> we don't need to provide conditions about how many hours a week somebody works or where somebody was born or what somebody looks like. And one more Anna tidbit for you. You're getting two today. It's a bonus. She's very fond of saying that you cannot expect unbelievers to act like believers. It would be pointless because the Holy Spirit does change us. We're born again. But we also can't expect new believers to act like seasoned saints because we are learning to toddle and then to walk and then to run. <clears throat> and that should be joyful to watch and to encourage. <clears throat> it's very simple, but it's not easy. And we should remember that too, that it wasn't easy for Jesus and it's not easy for us. And it's certainly not easy for somebody coming to Christ for the first time. Thank God that we have scripture to help us remember that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ with the Father and that we have an advocate with us in the Holy Spirit. Jesus proclaimed that. The Holy Spirit would vouch in our hearts and in our lives about the simple truth of what was accomplished on the cross. And we're going we're to continue talking about this verse next week because we can't leave it just like that. But let's leave with this that he is the propitiation for our sins. It simply means that he's the payment, he's the satisfaction for them. That's enough for us to remember as we go out of here today. And that's enough for us to proclaim to others who don't know it or who are afraid of big words. <clears throat> it's really simple. Okay, let's keep it that way, church, and let's walk in the light. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your propitiation, Lord. Thank you for being worthy of making that sacrifice and for then providing an avenue for us to accept it. Thank you for providing us a righteousness that we didn't have and could never create. Thank you for the scripture here that teaches us your truth. Help us to be careful with it, to ponder it, to pray about it, understand it more deeply so that we would know you better and so that we would then help others to know you better rather than to hoard it ourselves. We love you, Lord. We thank you for being the great father that you are. Amen.